Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. Well, it is down to the wire. There are approximately 28 shopping hours left. <laughs> I know for some of you, it's like you are just hitting your stride. This is, this is when you kick it in. You know, this is, this is prime time shopping for you. Others of you, I think I have lost for the rest of the morning because you're all mad. You think, oh, yeah, that's right. I got to get out there this afternoon. So, um, and, and it seems like every year, every year there's like the gift you know, the, the gift that's hard, that everybody wants, that's hard to find, that no one cares. You know, you just, it's, they're sold out wherever you go. And it's become a little more sophisticated year after year after year. Way back in the 70s, you know, it was a rock. You know, the, the present was a pet rock, believe it or not. That was what. And then it got a little more sophisticated in the 80s. It was all about dolls, Cabbage Patch Kids. That was the present everybody had. And then I think not too long ago, back in the 90s, it was the Tickle Me Elmo, you know, a little more sophisticated. And like last year, it was the three, Xbox 360. This year, it's the Wii. Um, you know, it just gets more, hard, more and more expensive and harder and harder to find. And uh, they, I was reading this last week. Uh, I think it was in Monday's paper. They were talking about the popularity now of gift cards. It's like stress-free shopping, you know. You can go to Safeway and you can get a gift card for just about any store there is in creation, you know, and they get real, real easy. And there was a little debate. I was listening to a radio program. There was a little debate about, you know, if that was kind of tacky, like especially for your husband or for your wife. It's like if by now you can't find a present for them, a gift card is not going to do it for you. But I actually heard one guy, he said he is so overwhelmed by the whole thing, he's decided he's making his own gift card that he's going to give to his wife for a gift card of her choice later on down the road. You know, that was his solution to the whole thing. So for those of you who are last-minute shoppers and you're really kind of struggling with this whole thing, I found a book this week titled Bah Humbug and Everything Else We Love About Christmas. And in here, they have given us a list of the top five gifts not to give this Christmas, okay? So for those of you who are still shopping, these are the top five gifts you do not want to give this Christmas. Number five, clothing for cats. Do not give clothing for cats. Cute sweaters and little socks are simply too great an assault on the feline dignity. Diminished self-respecting cats can lead to a host of problems, including litter box rejection. He will show you exactly what he thinks about your gift on the living room carpet. Number four, gift not to give this Christmas. Technology for the technology challenged. There is no greater heartbreak than watching your mother trying to plug a cell phone into a standard phone jack. And although it's tempting to want to see Grandpa Boogie with his iPod, you and he probably aren't ready, so spare yourself the indignity. Number three, gift not to give this Christmas, camping gear for couch potatoes. Your brother will just wind up using that down-filled sleeping bag to line the dog's bed. However, they say hiking boots do make handy storage bins for beer cans and the remote control. So there is a possibility there. Number two gift not to give this Christmas, a diet book for anybody. (laughs) Enough said. And the number one gift you should never give give under any circumstances is, anybody want to guess? Fruitcake. The number one answer. Do you know anyone who actually eats fruitcake? 
Unless your relative needs a doorstop or has a loose paving stone in his front walk, skip the fruitcake. Your family will thank you for that. So, little helpful hints there for those of you who are still shopping. Christmas is a lot about giving. It's about gifts. And it goes all the way back to three wise men who were the first givers of gifts. And actually, it goes all the way back to the greatest gift that was ever given, the gift that God has given us through Jesus Christ. It is probably the greatest gift that was ever offered this world. But what's amazing as you read the story how few people really got in on it from the beginning. For all of the angel choirs and bright lights and stars shining and all of that, a surprising number of people missed out on the whole thing. In fact, just a very select few people got in on it from the very, very beginning. And the list of people who got in on it is a little bit surprising. A struggling young married couple, a handful of shepherds, And maybe the most surprising group of all is this this group of unnamed guys from the east called magi, wise men. They could probably accurately be described as the very first seekers of God. And they're mentioned very, very briefly. In fact, they're only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. And if you read the account, it's only like six paragraphs long, 14 sentences They kind of appear on the scene and they disappear and you never hear from them again. And yet there is something about these guys that their story gives us such insight into what it means to be a seeker of God. Their example is a great example for anyone who is seriously, seriously seeking God. And the way that God led them gives us a great insight into the heart of God for those who will seek him. Listen to the story, Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then King Herod heard, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are no means at least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exactly what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of myrrh, gold, and frankincense. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. That's it. They show up, they disappear. But I think there's some tremendous lessons for all of us 
And in them, you see some examples, some real qualities of what it means to be a seeker of God. And the truth is, we all are. At one level or another, we all are are all seekers of God. So what I want to do this morning is kind of take a look at these guys and, and some of their example about what it means to be a wise seeker of God. What are the qualities and characteristics of a wise seeker of God? And one of the things that stop, stands out first off is that wise seek, a wise seeker searches earnestly. A wise seeker does it with intensity. They give their search the attention that it really does deserve. We don't know much about these guys. Who were they? All we are told is they are magi. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked where the baby was born to be king of the Jews. They, we saw his star in the east, they said, and we have come to worship him. That's all we know. Magi from the east. And there's been a lot of speculation over the years. In fact, a lot of tradition has grown up. Some people have even given them names. <laughs> But we really don't know how many there were. Tradition says there were three, but that's kind of because three different types of gifts were given, but we don't know how many. We don't know much about them. Some think they were kings, philosophers, scholars, astronomers, astrologers. We don't really know. What we do know a little bit is that it would be typical for in any royal palace for the king to have advisors. Kind of like we today have a president has his own cabinet. It's his advisors who specialize in certain areas. And they bring advice to him. And they give him counsel. And they make recommendations. And, and that was typical of the time. This is not something that would be out of the ordinary. So more than likely, that's what these guys were. They were royal advisors to the king, wherever they came from. And it would be typical for these advisors to be sent on any occasion, any political occasion and whatnot, to send an emissary. And so these guys would be sent as emissaries, as emissaries of the king, representing their government. And that's probably pretty likely who they were. What we do know about them for sure is they were not Hebrews. They were not Jewish. They were in many respects what you would consider outsiders. They were not part of God's dealing with men historically, at least as far as they knew. They were not part of the Jewish nation that God had called as a people unto himself. They were not part of the covenants and the law that had been given through Moses They were not part of that. It's possible that they had some influence on it because if they came from the east, it's likely they came from Persia or Babylon, which is where the Israelite exiles spent many years. And so it could be that they had some knowledge about this and about a Messiah, but likely not. All that we really know for sure is that they were not Hebrew. They were outsiders. Which, by the way, if you are someone this morning who considers yourself an outsider when it comes to the things of God, that doesn't disqualify you. (laughs) These guys had not been part of the tradition, and yet they were included in the story. It's likely if they were from Babylonia, Persia, it was probably somewhere around a 900-mile journey for them. So this was not an easy undertaking. This was not like, you know, over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. (laughs) This was a long journey. It took planning, it took preparation, it took um, intentionality, it took purpose, it took a a steadfast resolve to keep going wherever it led them because they didn't really know for sure. And I think in contrast to them, sometimes we can take our pursuit of God so casually because we're exposed so often to the things of God. We live in a nation where 
a lot of people call themselves followers and believers. And we had a lot of spiritual influence. But I think even those of us who call ourselves believers sometimes take our search and our pursuit of God so casually. And these guys are very, very different about that. We tend to kind of sometimes pursue God the same way a child has to go look for his lost shoe. You know, moms, you know what I'm talking about. You know, when your kids have lost one of their shoes and you send them up to their room, you say, go find it, go look for it. It's got to be up there somewhere. And they go up and they take one cursory glance around the room and say, it's not here. (laughs) Mom, I can't find it. You know, that's sometimes how we treat our search for God. It's like, well, if it's not right in front of our face, eh, I don't have time for this. These guys were intent. They were purposeful. They were steadfast in their search. And wise seekers do that. They understand what's at stake. They understand the value of what they are searching for. See, in Christ, we have been offered the promise of life. Life with God. Life as God intended it to be lived. That is something worth pursuing. And it's worth pursuing with all of your heart. It's not a trivial pursuit. It's not a vain pursuit. In fact, God had promised and has promised that anyone who will seek with their whole heart, you will find him. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied hundreds of years beforehand, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. We talk a lot around here about our mission as a church is to help people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you up front, a wholehearted follower is a wholehearted seeker. It takes seeking with your whole heart to become a wholehearted follower. And we are all, make no mistake, we are all seekers. We might be a little bit further along on the journey, but we all have so much more to learn about this life that God has for us. And wise seekers search diligently. They search earnestly. They give it a priority. Another thing about a wise seeker is that a wise seeker seeks out guidance. A wise seeker asks for help. In fact, my wife reminds me often, the proof that these guys were wise men was that they stopped and asked for directions. (laughs) That's the absolute, that's all it took for her, you know. In fact, I I made a comment last Sunday about, um, you know, my questioning the wisdom of these guys who would stop at the palace of King Herod, knowing what King Herod was all about. And I actually had someone send me this email. Um, They said, do you know what would have happened if it had been three wise women instead of three wise men? First of all, they would have asked directions. They would have arrived on time. They would have helped deliver the baby, cleaned the stable, made a casserole, and brought more practical gifts. So that's the difference. But a wise seeker knows that the information and the wisdom that they have will only get them so far. These guys only had so much information. They didn't have enough to complete the journey. And they were smart enough to stop and ask for help. And they assumed it's an heir to the throne. Where would you expect to find the heir to the throne? You would go to the place where heirs to the throne would be. And that's why they went to the palace. And they came from the east to Jerusalem, and they went to the palace, and they said, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? They asked the people who would be most likely to know. Now, they came to Herod, 
And of course, Herod, he wasn't a real seeker of God anyway, so he said, I don't know. (laughs) Beats me. But he knew where to go. So he went to the priests and the teachers. And he called a meeting of all the leading priests and teachers of the law. And he asked them where the Christ would be born. And they said, in Bethlehem. They knew the answer to the question. They had searched the scriptures. One of the best things you can do as a seeker is to connect yourself with others who are seeking God wholeheartedly. It's the importance of a church family. To put yourself in a community of seekers, people who are intent and interested and earnest in their search for God. And the best thing you can do is to align yourself with people like that. People who know the scriptures. People who know the answers. Become a part of a church family. Give yourself to that and make yourself a regular part of that. Not on the fringes, but connected. In fact, even on a smaller scale, getting connected into a small group, and that's why we make such a priority about small groups around here. Because in those kinds of Commitments in those kinds of small group settings, in those kinds of relationships, you learn and you study and you grow together. Because this journey of faith is not a solo deal. It's meant to be done with others. Find yourself a church family. Get involved in a small group. Find yourself spiritual mentors. Those who are more familiar with Scripture. People that you can look to and see that their lives have been changed by the work of God in their life. Find someone who can help you take the next step. And build your life and those kinds of relationships. Because that's where you're going to find the answers to your own seeking. Now, let me give you a caution about this, because this is really, really important. In your search, don't just search for information. Don't just think it's all about feeding your brain with information. The irony of this story, one of the ironies of this story is that the guys who knew the answers were not interested in following it. They knew where it was supposed to happen. But they had no interest at all. Not one of them is recorded having said, hey, let me go along with you. (laughs) They knew all the information. They had the right answer right there at their fingertips. All they had to do was be asked, and they could give the right answer. But it's not about just knowing the answers. A wise seeker seeks out wisdom and guidance and life application. Having answers only gets you halfway. It's how you respond to the information. It's how you embrace it and make it a part of your life that gets you on the right track. In fact, Jesus' greatest challenges with the people who knew all the answers. His greatest frustration were with those who knew the answers. They just weren't interested in where the answers were supposed to lead them. Mark 7, 6, Jesus said, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, he told them, because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Don't get sidetracked in the search, because it's not just about acquiring information. I have known numerous Christians over the years who know an awful lot about the Bible and can point you to the right answers if you ask the questions. But their lives reflect little of transformation because it's all in their head and very little has translated into life. And your search for God is about life. 
Wise seekers know that. Another thing about a wise seeker is they expect the unexpected. Wise seekers expect the unexpected. You see, our search for God is often going to be filled with surprises. These guys made the search. They got to Jerusalem. They asked the questions. They got sent on another way to another area. They went to Bethlehem. But it says when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, think about this. These are emissaries of a king who have come to a palace to see another heir to the throne. And they have come to the capital city, which is what you expect, except they are given a detour. They are diverted to Podunkville, (laughs) the boonies, Bethlehem, a little nondescript village, maybe five, six hundred people. Not much more than that. Not much to look at. They come from a palace to a hovel. There is plenty of room to question their search. There is plenty of room to be filled with disappointment. This isn't what we expected. This isn't what we were looking for. I mean, we were expected to be greeted as dignitaries. We're here to see a king. And instead, they're ushered into this small little home. And yet their reaction is not one of disappointment. Their reaction is one of joy. They're excited about this. They're filled with awe and amazement and wonder. They weren't deterred by the ordinariness of the setting. And I have experienced in my own life so often God shows himself in the ordinary of life. They weren't deterred by detours. And I have found very often God shows up in the detours and the disappointments of our life. What we need to do is train our eyes to recognize him because he's showing himself to us all the time. Scientists tell us that each of us have a dominant eye. You got a pair of eyes, but one of your eyes is dominant. And typically, your dominant eye is also like your dominant hand. So if you're right-handed, it's typically going to be your your right eye. If you're left-handed, it's going to be your left eye. And you can actually do a test. You can actually do a test to discover your dominant eye. In fact, I kind of like to do that this morning, a little audience, audience participation here, okay? This is how you do it, okay? With both of your eyes open, okay, looking straight ahead, point at an object, okay? If you want to point to me or something on the wall here, whatever it is, but point to an object, okay, with both of your eyes open. Okay, now close your left eye. Now close your right eye and open your left eye. Okay, whichever eye your finger moved its point to, okay, that's your weak eye. Your dominant eye is the one that stayed pointed to the same direction when you, when you closed the other one. Try it again, okay? Point at something with both eyes. Close your left eye. Close your right eye. Anybody notice it? Yeah, that's your dominant eye. Now you learned something, okay? How many here do not have a dominant eye? It just was the same each way. Okay, you're ambidextrous. I don't know what you are. There are a small majority of people, a small minority of people that, that see equally in both eyes, but most of us have a dominant eye. The same thing is true for the eye of your heart. You have a dominant eye in your heart. And it determines how you see the circumstances of your life. Karen Maines writes about this in her book, The God Hunt. She writes about it this way. 
Sit still for a while when you're disappointed in some way, excluded from the place you most desire. Run an inner eye test. Ask yourself if God had something to do with your unplanned detour. Is there a lesson he's seeking to teach you? Has he intervened in your intended progress? Conduct some rigorous self-examination. What draws your eye first? Is it the hunt for prestige, power, money, sex, or fame? Be willing to retrain your vision. In order to see God's activity in our lives, we're going to have to set the optical apparatus of our souls Godward and then learn how to keep him in our sights. We are going to have to choose to see the divine interventions in life in the strange interludes of living. I like that. Because I believe God is working in the ordinary of our lives. That God is constantly directing us, sometimes through detours, sometimes through disappointment. But God is directing our lives. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, there were people who could not see who he was. There were people who refused to see who he was because they had an internal bias. Their heart's eye, their soul's eye did not look towards God. It looked towards the natural. And so some of them would hear his teaching, those in his hometown, and they said, where did he get all this wisdom? He's just the carpenter, the son of Mary. And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Notice their preconception kept them from belief. Proverbs 18:15 says, "Wise men and women are always learning, always listening for fresh insight. A wise seeker is a lifelong learner. They are always open. They always understand. God has so much more to show me. God has so much more to teach me. I have so much more to learn in this walk with him." And they keep their eyes open for the unexpected. And when you do that, you very often see God showing up. Wise seekers also offer their best. These guys knew when they set out on this journey, it was going to cost them something. It was going to cost them their time. It was going to cost them traveling expenses. You know, they were going to have to stop and pay, you know, to rent, rent a camel or whatever it was. You know, it was going to cost them something. A good portion of their life was going to be given to this for a while. And in fact, they were coming as emissaries bringing gifts. That was their mission. And a wise seeker understands that. Your search is going to cost you something. It's why they came. It says when they got there, they bowed down and worshipped him. And they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and myrrh. Now think about those gifts. Highly extravagant, very costly, and very impractical. I mean, those presents would have made sense in a palace because there would be a royal treasury and there would be a use for incense and, and myrrh. There would be use for those kinds of things. But here with this kid, it seems kind of silly, a little over the top. What's he going to do with this stuff? He's got no use for this. And yet the truth is, they didn't hold anything back. They could have. Who would have known the difference? They could have given some of it. They went, well, I don't know about the incense and the myrrh, but everybody could use a little gold now and then, so we'll give them the gold and then we'll take the rest back with us. But they didn't do that. 
They didn't hold anything back. The things that they had brought to give are the things that they left. And I think it reveals their heart. Because the true heart of someone is revealed in their giving. And these guys held nothing back. It was a moment of truth. It was a decision. What are we going to do about this? And I think the truth of the matter is they needed to give these gifts for their own sake. Because it reveals their own heart. And the same thing is true with you and me. See, it's not just about searching. It's also about giving. Christ has promised to us a new life. He has offered to us a gift of this life with God. But there's got to be an exchange because you can't live two lives. That's just not allowed. And so there's an exchange that happens that I give up my old way of living, my old way of doing things, my own agendas, my own rights, my own pursuits, and I exchange them. And what I get is something much, much better in return. That's why Paul wrote to the Roman church, offer your lives as a living sacrifice to him. Your offering must be only for God and pleasing to him, which is the spiritual way for you to worship. Offer your lives to him. Don't hold anything back. Your search is going to cost you something. Give it your best. And the last thing, that a wise seeker is changed by the search. Something happens in these guys because of this. We don't find out anything else about them once they get back. We don't find anything else about the story except this, that having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Now that just seems kind of like a PS to the whole story. But there's something important there. See, they came with their own agendas And then they got a detour, and they were given Herod's agenda. Now, remember, if these guys are emissaries of the king, then if they do not follow the customs of the king in the country they are visiting, it could spark an international incident. Okay, They're obligated by their responsibilities as emissaries to do in the country of the king what the king of that country says for them to do. And he says to them, when you find the king, you come back and tell me where it is so that I could go and worship. Of course, Herod had his own agenda. He was so paranoid about another threat to his throne that his real agenda, and we find this out as we read the story a little bit further, that his real agenda was to destroy whatever threat there was to his throne. And if there's a baby that's coming on as a pretender to my throne, I got to deal with him right away. And these guys are kind of caught in a quandary. What do we do? And I think their response reveals something about their hearts. Their agenda was changed. Their loyalty changed. They were not loyal to Herod. They decided instead to obey God. And what's interesting about it is that God spoke to them in languages that they would understand. To stargazers, he uses a star. To wise men, sages, philosophers, and interpreters of dreams, he appears in a dream. He speaks their language to them. And what they discover, which is what every one of us discover in our search for God, is that while all along we think it is we who are searching for God, the truth of the matter is that God has come in search of us. That God has been the initiator of the search all along. 
that he is the one who has been revealing himself. He is the one that has been speaking to us. He is the one that has been arranging our lives. He is the one that has brought relationships across our paths. He is the one that has intervened in situations. He is the one that has been pursuing us all of our lives. And somehow we don't really discover that until we come to the end of our own search and we realize it was God who was searching all along. It's what he said to the prophet Isaiah. I revealed myself to those who didn't ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. And to a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am. Here am I. Here am I. And that prophecy is fulfilled in these magi, outsiders, foreigners, not members of the promise, not a part of the covenant, but God has been revealing himself to them all along. You see, we all know on some level this whole idea of seeking. As kids, we've played the game, hide and seek. And when you play the game of hide and seek, the thing you don't want to be is it. (laughs) Because it's no fun being it. In fact, when you play the game of hide and seek, how does everybody start the game? Not it. Because <laughs> being it is humbling. Being hit is no, it is no fun. It is much more fun to be one of the hiders. Because when you're the hider, you get to choose where you go. You get to keep your eyes open. You get to find a nice little hiding place and snicker quietly to yourself as a person walks back and forth in front of you without even knowing you're right there within arm's length. It's more fun to be a hider. Nobody wants to be it. But the message of Christmas is that God chose to be it. God chose to be it. God came in search of us. The humility of that. And when the game of hide and seek ends, there's usually something that it shouts out for everybody to hear wherever they are hiding. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. And it means that wherever you've been hiding, wherever you've been camped out, and however far you have gone away, it's free to come home. There's no penalty. There's no risk of being tagged. You are free to come home. And that's the message of grace. That's what Christ did. For those who would seek him, they discovered he had been seeking them all along. That's what his coming was all about, that God has come in search of you. And wherever you have been hiding, and whatever parts of your life you keep hidden, he has come to say, all the the oxen free. All the the oxen free. You are free now to come home. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me ask you this morning, in a few moments of quiet reflection, just between you and God, where are you in your search? You might describe yourself this morning as a seeker, an outsider to the things of God. You don't know much about the Bible. You know even less about Christianity. But someone's been tugging at your heart for a long, long time. 
Someone's been speaking your language and trying to get you to hear and trying to get you to see. And maybe this morning it's time to come home to simply acknowledge I have been hiding far too long and what I really want is to be found. And you can take a step of faith this morning and simply say, Lord, I'm coming home. I'm tired of hiding from you. I'm tired of all the parts of my life that I keep hiding from you. I want to come home. Forgive me. Restore me. Wrap me in your arms and embrace me with your love. Give me this new life. And in that simple prayer, you are found. Now, it may be you found a relationship with God a long time ago. And life for you right now has been a disappointment. It's not what you expected. It's not what you turned out to be. And you're wondering, where is God? He's there in the disappointments. If you'll open your eyes and turn your heart to Him. Maybe this year, as we head into a new year, it's getting connected. It's surrounding myself with other like seekers where I can learn and I can grow and become part of a church family or maybe joining a small group or giving yourself diligently to this search. But whatever type of seeker you are, the good news of Christmas is God has come in search of you and now you can come home. You are free. He has given you a new life. Do not, do not walk away from it. Open yourself to him and embrace the life that he has for you. This Christmas, God has come looking for you. And if you're ready to take that first step of faith this morning, let this be your prayer. Lord, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for your love and your mercy, for your forgiveness, that there's nothing I need to keep hidden from you anymore. I need forgiveness. I need restoration. I am looking for the life that you have for me. And in this moment, I take that very first step of faith and I entrust my life now into your hands. My old way of doing things is going to change because I'm going to rely on you now. So lead me and guide me and give me that life you've promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing this song in our closing. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.